The reading this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. In the Church Bibles, that's on page 1182. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bob. Good morning, everyone. My name's Prash. I'm the senior minister. A very warm welcome if you're new or visiting and uh, good to see all the regulars here at church. It's lovely to have a, a sunny day and to, to make it into church without an umbrella. Uh, a small blessing, but one we appreciate. <clears throat> let me pray for us. We'll pray. Yes, let me pray for us as we begin. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and minds this morning. Give us a vision of the Lord Jesus and so make us more like him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you're with us this morning after a while or for the first time, we're looking at the New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to a little church in Colossae um, and, uh, called Colossians. And last week was our first week and we reflected on how Paul started his letter with a prayer uh, and this prayer and this, his whole manner of speaking and thinking about the world came from the central um, conviction that he had been relocated from one dominion to another by the work of Jesus. And so the question that we had then, I think that it's then bubbling about, is tell me more about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And that, that question, who is Jesus, has been the question for 2,000 years throughout the course of civilization. People have constantly asked this question, who is Jesus? And for many years, in fact more recently, one of the things that's preoccupied us as we've sought to answer that question, who is Jesus, has been his appearance, his physical appearance. So you can, you know, you can go onto the internet and Google what did Jesus look like and there will be pictures of what Jesus might have looked like. You know, they've constructed them based on what a Palestinian male in Jesus' time might have looked like. Okay? 
Now, here's the thing. As we come to asking this question, who is Jesus, what's really interesting about the Bible's answer to this question is it cares little to nothing about the physical appearance of Jesus. Nothing, actually. This is not that physical appearance means nothing, although I think it does reflect something about our culture which judges people based on their appearance, right? So what someone looks like is very powerful in our kind of visual culture now. That doesn't, doesn't, it's not a concern for the writers of the New Testament at all. That doesn't mean they, don't all, they disregard people's appearance at all. Like the story of Zacchaeus, for example, in Luke, where his short stature is a key component of, his un, of understanding his place in culture, is brought out. But here, but in the Bible, they never talk about Jesus. They don't talk about his hair being curly. They don't talk about whether he had brown eyes or blue eyes. Uh, they don't talk about how tall or short he was or whether he was, you know, chubby or skinny. Or, you know, they'd say nothing about the physical appearance of Jesus. But the New Testament is at pains to explain the very nature of Jesus. Right? And we see that in this morning's passage just read to us by, by Bob. This is a passage all about this central question, who is Jesus? And if you were to summarise it, it would be with this, with this word in verse 18. In everything, Paul says, he, Jesus, might have the supremacy. In other words, for Paul, the, way, the, the best word to describe Jesus is supreme. Now, when we hear that word supreme, we think pizza toppings. But, Jesus, but Paul uses the word supreme for very specific Jesus is, as the, uh, the song you just sang with uh, the younger members of our church goes, he's number one. In other words, he's right at the top where he belongs, as, as, uh, as Colin Buchanan would say. He's supreme. But what do we mean by supreme? And that's actually what Paul's unpacking in the first five or six verses of the reading of this part of the letter that we had read this morning. And l- let, me just, let me go through it for you. Okay, So here he is. Verse 15, the Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then if you skip forward to verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul's laying down layer after layer for us to understand who Jesus is. And he says he's the image of the invisible God. Now when we think about image, you might think about like putting a picture through a photocopier and it comes out with a copy Right? It's a copy of the original. That's not what Paul's saying. He, that, the word can sometimes mean that, but it can also mean manifestation, like the actual presence of God is here. And so Paul is saying Jesus reveals the invisible God. The great power behind all things is here revealed in Jesus. And it's not just Paul who says this. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God, says Paul. When you encounter Jesus, you're encountering God. He is the very image, the very manifestation, the actual presence. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews says he is the exact representation. The Apostle John says that Jesus is where we meet God. He makes God known to us in John chapter 1. Peter describes Jesus when he is living with him as the Messiah and the Son of God. He said very, these are divine titles in, in Hebrew culture, and Peter gives them to him. Um, the, the Apostle John, uh, the Apostle Thomas, 
When he meets the risen Christ, says, my Lord and God. These are not words that Jewish men just threw around, especially devout Jewish men. But they, you see, this is the unique but consistent testimony of the disciples and the early church about Jesus. He's the very image of the invisible God. He is God. When you meet him, he's God. And, and Paul says he's the firstborn over all creation. It's a tricky word because at times people got tripped over. They think, oh, Paul's saying he's the first to be born. In other words, the first created thing. But that's not what he's saying. He's using a word that has a, has a, has a particular kind of history to it in Jewish culture. The firstborn in Jewish time was often was the person who received the rights of the parents, everything that was of value to the parents. So, so for example, in the Psalms, David is described as God's firstborn, King David. Now, he's certainly not the first to be born, and he wasn't born out of God. But what, what's being described there is David is the one who receives all that is he's entitled to as the great heir because in jewish culture the firstborn got everything that belonged to the parents that was they they were entitled to all of all of what was their parents and so he says david is appointed by god as the one who's entitled to all his power and authority they describe israel as being the firstborn again the nation itself can't be the firstborn in a biological sense no it's the one who's received all of the kind of power authority and privilege of god is bestowed on israel and so when paul says he's saying jesus is the firstborn over all creation he is the one before all creation who gets the authority the power the 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 privilege the glory of god and then in case we were in case we weren't sure his repetition in verse 19 is to say the fullness of god dwells in jesus the fullness. See, this is why some people think Jesus is just kind of a lesser version of God, a lower version, a, a really great prophet. But Paul is at pains to say, no, the fullness of God dwells in. When you meet Christ, you've met all of God. This is so profound, isn't it? In this man, the fullness of God is expressed. Everything that there is about God is found in him, in him. This first extraordinary lay. This is what it means for Jesus to be supreme. But he goes on because he's probably, a lot of people think he's probably quoting a, a hymn that was written at the time and maybe tweaking it slightly, but it's a song and he's singing a song of praise to Jesus. And he says, in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, that's through Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is God. And what's his relationship to creation? He is the one who created. As one writer said, if God, was, God the Father was the architect of creation, then the Son is the one who brings it about. All of creation is created through him. And it's and it's through him that it's sustained. You know, the sun, the rain, the wind, your own heartbeat, consistently sustained by Christ. He's the, he is the one who animates all things. He is the one who continues to make things happen. And ultimately, 
He is the one for which all things exist, he says. Why do the, why do the stars shine? For the glory of Jesus Christ. Why does the sun beat down on us? Not primarily because it's part of some kind of mechanical system which you know, allows plants to photosynthesize and grow and, and gives warmth to creatures. All of those things are true, but secondary to the fact that the sun exists for the glory of Jesus. This is the great insight of the Bible. The Psalms say this as well. The heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the heavens exist to point to God, to point to Christ. This is why Paul says Jesus is supreme. Because everything is about him. And he gives purpose to everything. There's a recent survey that was done which said 45% of people believe there needs to be a purpose to life. I actually think the answer is 100%. They just, the other remaining 55% don't realise it. There's got to be a purpose to life. There's got to be a reason for existing. And Jesus gives the reason to exist. There's this beautiful window in the Agra Fort. If you've ever been to see the Taj Mahal in India, there's a fort reasonably close to it called the Agra Fort. And everyone takes a picture of this window. Now, there's a few windows from which you can see the, the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal is actually a big tomb built by a king for his queen. And, but the reason that everyone takes a photo of this, pic, this, this particular window is that it's the room that the king ended up being imprisoned in by his son. Talk about dysfunctional family. Um, but he, he used to look out that window at his wife's tomb for the last three years of his life. But here's the thing. It's the story that makes this window significant, isn't it? It's what catches your attention. It makes worthy of your time. This story is what makes it significant. And Jesus is what makes the world significant. It is by viewing creation and yourself through the lens of Christ that you find your deepest significance. You find the reason why you exist. You find the purpose for your life. You find the value for being here. Paul says Jesus is supreme. He, he is above everything because he's the reason for everything existing. He is how you see a purpose and a value to all things. And then he goes on and he finishes. He says he's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he's the start of the end. He's the start of the future. He's the start of a world without death. He's the new, he's the new beginning for a world that's otherwise dying and, and decaying. And he says that, of course, because he knows Christ as the risen one. And he sees in his resurrection the start of something that has never existed before. A whole new reality bursting in. Jesus is supreme. And Paul, just one after the other, he's laying it down. He's saying, this is who Christ is. This is who Jesus is. Do you, I mean, you can see why the New Testament writers cared little whether he had curly or straight hair, or whether he was five foot tall or six foot three. Because that doesn't matter compared to all this. This is who Christ is. I have two questions for you. First of all, have you met anyone who gets even close to this description? Have you had anyone who could, you could say 50% of this about? 40%? 30%? It's hard to find anyone who get, holds a candle to Jesus. 
He's extraordinary. But even more extraordinary is that Jewish men like Paul, like the Apostle John, who lived with Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who was considered Jesus' closest friend, would look at that man Jesus and see all of this. When they encountered Jesus, they, beyond the Jewish male exterior, they, they came to grasp the extraordinary truth that they were encountering God. This is perhaps the most, for use of a better word, crazy thing about the Christian faith. If it's true, Jesus is supreme. And if it's true, have you come to see, have you come to experience the real comfort of knowing Christ as supreme? Because if this is true, Jesus is the answer to every one of your anxieties in life. He's the cure to every one of your anxieties in life. If it's true, he answers every question you have. He answers every moment of uncertainty. He answers every fear that you have. If it's true, if what Paul is saying is true, if what these Jewish men, if what the disciples, if what the early church, if what generations after them believed is true, if what over three billion people in the world believe is true now, Jesus is the answer to every anxiety, every fear you have. Have you experienced that comfort? Have you experienced the comfort of knowing Christ is supreme? Now, Paul's talking about the power of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. The question is, what does that mean for the other powers in the world? This is, a, this is a thing that we, I think, grapple with more in our culture, you know, the interaction of power and power structures. So what does it mean for all those other powers if Jesus is supreme? And for the Colossians, they're grappling with this. In part, this is why he writes this. They're grappling because they're concerned about the, the spiritual powers that exist in the world. They're concerned about the power of angelic and demonic beings over them and other people. What kind of power do they exert? And so therefore, how are they meant to treat them? Paul, now we, we dismiss that kind of stuff. We think angels, demons, our natural tendency in a Western mindset is to kind of say, oh, don't worry about that. They don't, they don't really exist. They're not important. Paul doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't dismiss them. In fact, he addresses them here in verse 16. He says, in, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. That's kind of his way of describing them. But you see, he deals with, he has no anxiety about them whatsoever. He deals with them straight away. He says, visible or invisible, the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. In other words, all of those things are subject to Jesus. In fact, his supremacy is the answer to that question. You don't need to worry about all those powers because Christ is supreme over even them. What's more interesting, though, when we think about kind of opposition and, and powers in opposition to Christ is not how do, how do the spiritual powers oppose Christ or how does Christ deal with them, but look at who Paul sees is the greater enemy of Christ. It's not the, it's not the angels or it's the demons. The greater enemy 
for Paul against Christ is the enemy within our own hearts. It says in verse 21, he's described Jesus, and he says in verse 21, in the new paragraph in your English Bibles, he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds as shown in your evil behaviour. There's a slightly different translation in your Bible, but if you look at the footnote in your Bible, you'll see it's the, the same possibility. I think this is a better, slightly better version. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies. See, Paul says the more challenging opposition here is not the spiritual opposition, it's the opposition in our own hearts to Christ. And he calls it being opposed enemies in our minds. In other words, your mindset towards Christ. I think it's got to be mindset. And when he's thinking about mindset, it's got to be the worldview because that's what he's just been establishing, a worldview, right? A way of thinking about the world and the great purpose of life. And he says, if your mindset is different to that that he's just talked about, if your mindset, if your worldview doesn't have Christ as supreme, then you're an enemy to God. You're an enemy to God. Now, that means if you think the purpose, if I think the purpose of my life is something apart from Jesus, I'm an enemy to God, according to Paul. If I think the purpose of my life is to accrue wealth, the fundamental purpose of my life is to accrue wealth, I'm an enemy to God. See, I don't even need to say I don't believe Jesus exists. If my mindset, though, is that actually the purpose in life is about something apart from Christ, I'm an enemy. If, my, if I think the purpose in life is the happiness of my children, then I'm an enemy and I'm alienated from God. If I think the purpose in my life is to be happy, then I'm alienated from God, says Paul, because you are enemies of God in your mind, in your mindset, in your view of life. Your view, your worldview, is opposed to a worldview which has Christ as supreme. Because we said Christ is actually the purpose for all of creation and for your life. If you think your life is about something other than Christ, even without discarding Christ, but just simply making him secondary to whatever that purpose is, you're an enemy to God. You're alienated from God. And that alienation, that that opposition to God bears its way out in your behaviour. Now, for some of us, in those moments when our worldview is different to the Bible's worldview, when, when actually the, the purpose of our life is something alternate to Christ, it might just result in deprioritising things that remind us about Christ. It might be just choices to make Jesus and his word and his people less important in our life. It might be just something as simple and subtle as that. For other people, I think what it means is to actually, it's much more hostile. It's, it's, it's a hostility to Scripture itself and to the Bible, where we say the Bible is not all God's word. I'll take some of it and I'll leave some of mine. That allows us to create a Jesus of our own imagination in a sense. And maybe we've put that Jesus at the centre of life, but really that Jesus is just a better version of us, a version focused on us. We've left behind the real Jesus, the supreme Jesus. 
That's a much more hostile way of being an enemy of God. But either way, enemies of God are people who live their lives without Christ at the centre. They say, the purpose of my life is not Jesus Christ, it's something else. And I think, I think that, first of all, the challenge is, I think we all do that at times. I don't think we can go through a week without just saying, my week has been solely about Jesus Christ, or primarily even about Christ. The, the greater tragedy, though, of this is, as soon as we become alienated from God, we... We lose the comforts that come from knowing God as supreme, don't we? As soon as we're alienated from God, we lose the comfort of knowing that Christ is overall and rules over all things, all powers, authorities, thrones and dominions. We lose the deep comfort of the gospel and we lose the real purpose for our life. We lose contact with the, the fundamental reason that we exist when we're alienated from God. If you're someone who lives a forever restless life, a forever anxious life, the question to ask is, is do I live that in part? Because actually, the purpose of my life is not centred on Christ. I'm actually alienated from God. Now, as I said, I think this is what we all... Ch- we're, I mean, Paul says, you once were. He doesn't say some of you were, all of you were. But the good news, the extraordinary news of this, and the, actually the, the thing that's most extraordinary about the description of Jesus is not all those other things we just talked about. It is actually how Jesus then responds to those who are enemies to him. Look at how Jesus responds. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Here Jesus is. He is the image of God. When you look at him, you see who God is. You see God in action. And what is it that God is pleased to do to his enemies? Not judge them, not destroy them, but to reconcile with them. This is what he's most pleased to do. The word reconcile means not just to set free or to let off. All of those things are true. But the word here means to restore to favour. To restore to favour. In other words, to move you from the prison cell to the throne room. From the place of condemnation have the status as a son or daughter of God, a child of God. This is what Jesus does. This is the height, actually, of his supremacy. The height of his supremacy is that he's pleased to do this and to bring it about, not by some kind of legal fiction, but through the shedding of his own blood on the cross. Not by just forgetting all of our mistakes and failures, but by meeting them in his own body for us. This is the gospel. This is the extraordinary news. This is who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Yes, he's a first century Palestinian man, but he is the supreme God who meets his enemies with the offer of reconciliation, the offer to restore them, to show them 
favour that they're not due to show them grace and mercy. But as we finish, I just want you to see just what Paul says right at the end of all this. There's a challenge for each of us. This is an offer. This is an offer, which means if, if you've got any kind of contractual understanding, you need to accept it. This is an offer. And so he says, if you continue, verse 23, in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, you have to hold on to this truth that the only way you are reconciled is by the blood of Christ on the cross. And you cannot let that go. You cannot wake up after 10 years of believing it and suddenly decide that you're a good enough person now and you don't need it anymore. You have to hold on to it. You can't think there are other ways to get into God's good book, to be restored with God. No, you have to hold on to it. My in-laws, the reason I have a key there on that image is my in-laws have bought a holiday house many years ago. And they said to us, you can use it anytime you want. And as a token of this generosity, they gave our family a key and the code to the alarm. And, and so literally, I could go up today with, my, with, the, with the key, we could get in the car, go up, and we could use the house. We could, we could go and stay there. But here's the thing. I still need the key. As much as their generosity, I need the key. I can't turn up there with my key to my current house and use that to get in. I need to use the key which they gave me. And Paul's point is, you can't circumvent Christ. You can't get around him. You have to hold on to Jesus. That's the only way you get in. There's this great story called The Pilgrim's Progress, written in the 1600s by a, one of the Puritan writers, John Bunyan. He has this little moment. It's an allegory right, of the Christian life. And he tells the story of the, the main pilgrim, Christian, on his journey. And at one point, he meets all these different characters. One of the characters he meets is a guy called Ignorance. All the names are deliberate. And Ignorance, he meets him on the road. But one of the things that Christian needed to do was he needed to go past the cross. He needed to get new clothes. He needed to get like a ticket or a roll, they call it. He meets Ignorance. Ignorance doesn't have new clothes and doesn't have a roll. And he says, did you go past the cross? He says, no. I just cut across the field. He says, you can't get in. You won't be accepted. And sure enough, he's not. You need the key. You need the Lord Jesus. But if you have Christ, by virtue of who Christ is, you can be assured that when you turn up there, you will be safe. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we see your greatest desire is to reconcile with us, to restore us to your favour, to give us purpose and place in life. Lord God, would we hold on to the great gift that Jesus offers us when he dies for us on the cross? Would you help us not step away from that truth? And so find the great joy and comfort of knowing Jesus Christ, who is supreme over everything. In Jesus' name, amen.